From the Center of Theological Inquiry in Princeton, New Jersey, this is the Fresh Thinking Podcast. I'm Josh Malden, and I'm glad you're here. Marilyn Robinson is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author known for novels such as Gilead, Home, and Lila, as well as nonfiction works such as The Death of Adam, Absence of Mind, and most recently, The Givenness of Things. Recently, she was interviewed for the podcast of the New York Review of Books. The interviewer was none other than President Barack Obama. Meanwhile, Robinson is a friend of the Center of Theological Inquiry. A few years ago, she led a writer's workshop here at CTI, working with a group of theologians on how to improve their own writing. What you're about to hear is a talk Robinson gave at a CTI symposium held in Philadelphia in 2012. I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks for joining the conversation. Um, everything that I write that is on these, uh, this sort of subject um, is, reflects a sort of fusion of interests or passions or whatever that occurred in my mind. Uh, theology of a fairly classical type on one hand and everything that I can read with understanding about new cosmology and the new, new sense of, of the microcosm of, of subatomic life. <laughs> um, and um, it, these things, it's, you know, these convergences, you don't always know how they happen, why they happen. Uh, one of the important experiences of my undergraduate education, you won't hear this often, was reading Jonathan Edwards' Doctrine of Original Sin Defended. And the thing that was wonderful to me is the argument that he makes about the arbitrary constitution of the universe. And what he says is there is no way to describe why time eventuates in subsequent time, why any entity persists as itself over time, and so on. And, and of course, he, uh, he attributes this to the continuous recreation of reality by God. Now, his, his interpret you know, that's how he introduces the argument. And he says, he makes something I think is a very important point that the world that we experience is made accessible to our understanding. It, we, it is a world that we experience because it's addressed to us, essentially. You know. Now, um, if you look at contemporary science, and you, you, you see the, what is only begin to, beginning to open to us as the absolute complexity, the, you know, indescribable for our purposes, complexity of quantum physics and so on, um, then you realize that this knowable, confirmable, testable reality that we inhabit is, it seems to be more miraculous than any miracle you could describe. The fact that we are in a, a, a little sub, a little pocket of reality with everything roaring around us things behaving spookily, you know, that sort of thing. Um, but we feel, as, we feel at home in this world because, as it presents to us, it is extremely limited. It is lawful, you know. 
And the laws, again, as, uh, you know, can be described, if you want to, as arbitrary. It's true there's no reason to say that time unfolds in an orderly way. It's true that we can't describe the causalities that make everything replicate itself as itself. This is, he, he was absolutely right about that, you know? So, therefore, on the one hand, in the fact that the reality that we inhabit is describable and testable, this is the grace of God, i.e., a blessing on science. But to extrapolate from an, an extremely limited experience of what we know as the greater reality in the way that it has been the historical habit and is the present habit of science to do is not justifiable. It is not an acknowledgement of the fact that it's because we perceive being at a certain scale that it has what appear to us to be its physical qualities, you know, um, if we were smaller, we would see it buzzing and humming and being, you know, subatomic. Um, so there's a, you know, describe it how you will, but the fact is that we live in, in a capsule of reality in terms of scale, perception, and so on that does not generalize comfortably into what we know about the larger scale of being. This is true theologically, and it's true scientifically, you know. So... One of the consequences of this, as far as I'm concerned, is that the traditional dichotomy that you find so characteristic of, of the kind of science that I criticize is that it, it creates a, a, a dualism that Descartes, in his wildest imagination, would never have endorsed between the physical on one hand and what might be called the spiritual or the transcendent or whatever on the other hand. Uh, for one thing, we know that if you were to break down the simplest object that we see here, it would become Byzantium in terms of the mystery and the complexity of it. The fact of its apparent ordinariness is, Edwards would say, a concession to our limitations. You know, So in that sense, everything is on one continuum of being, which at both scales, macrocosmic and microcosmic, passes outside the range of the easily describable, begins to violate what we would have taken to be laws, etc. I mean, in terms of things like quantum, quantum physics and so on. So the, the, the intelligibility of our very limited participation in the universe encourages people to speak as if there were a qualitative difference between being at our scale and being in general. And that produces this, you know, the artificial model of, of, of rational thought, uh, which dominates science when science is not, when it, science is being less reflective than one hopes it would be. Um, so if, I mean, scientists say amazing things like the brain is a piece of meat, you know, yes. And look, you know, and here is the wonder of the universe, a piece of meat, you know, who can begin to describe it, its origins, its character, its, you know. And so the, a dismissive vocabulary of, you know, the quotidian, I think, infects scientific thought. Uh, and, 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 and pervasively, even. I mean, in places where you really wouldn't expect to find it, you know? Um, the question of um, human exceptionalism came up. And, of course, you know, no, no book is about everything. But even at that, a... 
I think that we have to accept our exceptionalism because we are morally, ethically, imaginatively tested in ways that no other creature is. We, can, we are rescuing ourselves from the gravity of our situation by standing very close to our brothers, the apes. You know, the apes are not destroying the world. That's a big difference, you know. And the, the degree to which we pose a threat to anything is a pure product of the fact that we have this capacity for abstraction and, and creation and so on that no other creature, no other creature in any way approximates. So that's, I mean, I, I, exceptionalism is our human burden. It's not our boast. The second thing is that um, as far as, as uh, animals go, you know, all respect to animals. But if you look at animists, they have intuitions about the intelligence of animals that are much more profound than, I mean, than science. You know, you pick, up, you pick up a magazine and it says, you know, crows are really intelligent. You know, well, you know, Aesop knew crows were intelligent. You know, There's a, the tendency of science has been to... Uh, make us more and more blind to the richness of life, including consciousness in other forms of life, than, than um, the unimpeded human intuition would have allowed us to believe. You know? so, you know, that, and this is my whole criticism of this form of science, that it contracts the notion of, of the mind in a way that makes it so that uh, you know, so that someone living 10,000 years ago would not have had a true and original intuition of the intelligence of an animal, you know? And so, I mean, God knows our laboratories have made huge sacrifices of every kind of creature on the assumption that they're only animals, which, you know, you would be much less likely to find in a pre-scientific culture. So I think that, um, that you know, understanding where we are in the world in terms of our bonds with other animals, which, of course, Genesis does note, another classic example of, of this earlier intuition. Um, the fact of our putting out of sight the legitimacy and the power of the mind being in the world has had a very brutal effect on the world. It has, you know... Now, now, when we try, we try to recover some earlier sense of the respect for other forms of life, but we have to acknowledge the way in which we lost it. You know, um, I, I feel, I, ever since I walked out of John Hay Library at Brown with Jonathan Edwards living in my brain, um, I have felt that there was a very great. Um, freedom in being, you know. In other words, that, that there are enormous uh, continuities. You know, the lily pads keep appearing under our feet. But these are not laws in the sense... I mean, when people first use the word laws, they're describing things that occur with what appears to be an absolute degree of predictability. But we have this way of acting as if law were a great gear that has to turn, you know, when in fact laws, just like everything else, are replicating themselves unaccountably from moment to moment, you know. So if you take a, a Calvinist or an Edwardsian view, 
then with all the apparent coherency of experience, God is free in relation to it, you know? So, um, so this takes me to my final point. I mean, I take this to be a coherent argument. Uh, <laughs> there, there is a passage in, in the, the Institutes that is so important to me that it's why I'm always going around saying I'm a Calvinist. And so important intrinsically, I think, that it explodes every less beautiful aspect of his theology and others. And that is the idea that whenever you encounter another human being, you encounter an image of God. And he takes this very literally. He, takes, he says, God gives you the other person. He presents the other person to you. Every encounter with another human being is a test of your response to God. I was ref- when uh, the, the sentence was, was quoted this morning, uh, you should worship God as if you saw him. That's a pretty good translation. I mean, or I should say Calvin was making a pretty good translation of exactly that idea. But the, the, uh, that, that God is free in relation to reality, that God addresses the mind, that we in in the same in the same way that calvin argues that we if we descend into ourselves we find god he also says whenever we encounter another person we encounter god so there's a profound individualism and a profound sociality at the same time you know um and um you know obviously in 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 subscribing to that kind of view i'm 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 adopting what is my favorite theological statement. But um, it's not a, it's a kind of statement that on the one hand is only meaningful in theological terms, but on the other hand is only constrained by the assumption of a narrow reality that we can no longer endorse as being a true description of reality. All we know is that being is energy of some sort. You know, all we know is that being is a great unfolding. And um, so, therefore, being, you know, influenced by this, this tradition, of course, I'm very inclined to think that the mind is privileged in the sense that it is open to a profounder reality than we conventionally describe that it continuously can know the world more deeply, newly, and in a way that perhaps is, is a, a response to a revelatory moment that is only its moment, i.e. the encounter with the other, the other human being, or with anything else. For Calvin, it can be stars, you know, it's usually stars. But uh, so, so you see what I mean? I'm not proceeding from the same assumptions that many other people do, I don't take, I don't respect the distinction between the physical and the transcendent, shall we say. I, I think that would have to be demonstrated uh, in ways that I frankly assume it is not accessible to demonstration. But, you know, I can knock on a table. That proves nothing because we, all, we have a deeper knowledge of what a table is, what a piece of wood is, you know. Um, anyway, that's okay. On we go. <laughs> Let me pick up on that last question from Darlene about what, how, could you repeat it? We'd love you to respond just to this, to 
uh, Miralini and, and to the wider conversation. Mind that would express the privilege of being a coherent self. And what, I mean, I think you've already addressed yeah. the theological the theological one. that would shape Could that. that but. Yes. My answer would be theological. I mean, I I think if you discipline yourself actually to uh, assume that there's something sacred in human encounter, um, then, I mean, that many, many privileges follow, many, many constraints follow. Uh, Reverence for one another is an obvious implication that I think would probably do more for, for the world than any other single thing. Reverence for one another simply as givens of God, simply as human beings, without condition. Miralini, thank you. It's my great pleasure to introduce our first respondent. Miralini Sebastian is a a scholar of literature, particularly post-colonial literature, uh, particularly in the Indian context. But uh, we're really delighted that you're with us here this afternoon, and we look forward to your remarks. Thank you so much for the privilege of being here. And I I just want to begin with something that uh, really has demonstrated to me and described to me the mystery of universe and the mystery of the human individual in the recent past. And this is uh, the unique experience of witnessing the free fall of Felix Baumgartner, who, when he was about to fall, said, sometimes you have to go up really high to see how small you really are. Uh, And I think uh, this confluence of both the best in the human mind and the best of human technology uh, and the coming together of it to actually witness to the mystery of the universe as well as the mystery of the human mind and the human and the divine and the cosmic was something really that uh, uh, explained less but described more, as you would put it, and as your book puts it, you know, shows it to us, uh, of, of something that is really unique about human beings. So my, my first question is then, are we willing to accept the acknowledgement of the mystery of the universe by those who are not exactly religious-minded? And, and it also actually deals with the comment uh, made by the first panelist where he spoke of the open-minded questioning of science and open-minded questioning of faith, which both converge to give rise to humility. And this was one moment where I really experienced both humility and the mystery, uh, humility of the human being and the mystery of the universe in one uh, short moment, which was watched by millions all over the world. And the second point that I want to make, uh, it relates to the uh, point about human exceptionalism that our second panelist made, but it also relates to what you said just now. Uh, I would just like to take it in a a slightly different way, in that uh, I would like to come back to the question of altruism that you raise in your book. And, And what we do get to see is one version of scientism, where altruism becomes selfish. And I would like to actually think of a kind of altruism 
which is not which is spiritual but not necessarily religious and i i i have in mind this spiritual uh, tendency that we see amongst the younger generation and this has also been demonstrated by a survey of college freshmen which says that they tend to be spiritual they tend to be uh, actually uh, concerned about social activism but they're not they are not necessarily uh, people and individuals who identify themselves with specific religious formation and that kind of altruism is actually a kind of expansive form of altruism because often i find that these youngsters are also very conscious of the of the of the world at large and especially about ecology about animals about uh, about poverty about social well-being uh, in 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 a in a you know in a in a sense that is not so restrictive and the third point that i would like to make that which will also end in a question has to do with your point about um, uh, how do we learn to be better learn to lead how how do our convictions lead us to uh, lead a better lives and i think that was a concern that i had it came up in the morning's discussions but a concern that i would like to raise again we have uh, engaged with the individual mind so far the way the individual can go beyond the actual chemical Uh, a, cons- a, cons- a constitution of the brain and become more than that in uh, you know in 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 its form as the mind that can go beyond the immediate the present but i would like to think in terms of the collective mind and and i would really like to twist the the word para science and talk about para theologians i mean do we do do the theologians have a way of engaging with the certitude of para theologians who seem to imagine that truth rests only in them because i do believe that religion is both uh, you know it, it is a gift that we have and a gift that can all which can also destroy life so i really want to know if all the theologians who have spoken such nuanced way uh, this morning and yesterday do we really have a way by which we can speak to the certitude of the para theologians which has brought about such harm in this world which uh, i do feel that the youngsters in their own ways have figured out a way of dealing with that but uh, somehow the conversations the more profound conversations uh, still need to include these ideas and these thoughts so that would be my Thank question very much merlini <coughs> we've got the spirituality of the younger generation and the danger of para theologians what a comment on that <laughs> well you know i uh we have a long history of treating very good theologians as paratheologians and i think basically we had better just uh, say let a thousand flowers bloom because but but that does not mean be silent in the face of things that are clearly destructive and clearly distortions um i think that if young people now and i deal with them all the time 
are not associating themselves with religion, it's because they don't find good religion to associate themselves with, either because they've been disappointed by their particular tradition or because they only know it from television and it's disgraceful and and irritating on television, you know. Um, I think that very often young people are uh, uh, dissuaded from religion on religious grounds, they won't associate with it because they're afraid it's ungenerous. They're, they won't associate with it because it seems to them to draw lines between people that are cruel and destructive and so on. So um, I think that really the, the, you know, the major problem of theology as I see it myself, being no theologian, is that it, uh, it, the more serious theologians have disappeared into the academy and been influenced in their thought and writing by a kind of, uh, uh, why is it that academic thought and writing uh, is, seems to be a sort of finger in the eye of the general public? But that does seem to be the case, you know. Um, we don't have enough uh, of our best theologians writing in a way that's publicly accessible as thought, simply that. Um, there's no respect for the public, I think, uh, reflected in this um, failure on the part of, this, of the very people who lament the decline in the popular image of theology. Uh, it's, it's not going to happen by itself, you know. Um, I think that a lot of uh, people who would be the theologians of this period are uh, afraid to be associated with paratheology and recede on those grounds, which simply gives the entire theater to the, to the loudest voice. Um, the um, I my own experience is that if you I have mentioned the word Karl Barth in seminars, people go off to the library and find Karl Barth. I've produced one of the best Barthians I know. <laughs> you know, all they have to do is is find out that there is a real profound literature of Christian thought. They have no way of picking this up from what floats around in the culture, you know? Um, it, there's a... Why do we... I mean, you know, I assume that most of us in our varieties of, of Christianity assume that every soul has a history with God, that God is attentive to every soul. Don't we assume that, more or less? Yes. So why do we think that we have socially constructed a, a mental state of doubt and that we have to socially... Re-engineer. What we have to do is is give people the documents and the culture of Christianity in the forms that it is beautiful, and let God do the rest. You know, and what we have actually done by trying to condescend to a level that we assume these people whom we undervalue will be responsive to, we have sifted out and excluded exactly the things that are moving to us and would be moving to them. You know? We have to recreate Christianity on the best model of Christianity. And that's music, and that's theology, and that's serious attention, courageous attention to scripture. 